Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, due to a lack of vaccine, we are fighting over who gets the shot next. Who should? Peel and Toronto are closing schools. Should we be doing the same? The Chinese Communist Party is harassing Chinese Canadians. How do we stop it? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. This year I wished the Easter Bunny for a vaccine shot for my parents. Instead, I got another package of masks and some hand sanitizer. What is that? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Better than nothing, you ungrateful little. You you take those masks and you first you sanitize, then touch the mask. No, don't be touching your face and touching your. Good afternoon. It is twelve ten. It is nine hundred. Ch Malam Scott Thompson Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes as we enter week number fifty five. Uh, jump into the, yes, someone's, yes, someone's happy. Uh, feel free to, uh, jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you find the podcast edition of the commentary there waiting for you soon. Also, uh, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, let's start off with where we are now. Um, obviously talking about vaccinating essential workers, uh, and, and, uh, everybody wants to, to, to bump this up. But again, if you take from one, a segment. Uh, if you give to one segment, you're taking from another. And again, what has worked and what we've been doing so far is starting with the older demographics and slowly moving down in five-year increments, uh, sitting around 60, 65, depending on where you are. If you're in a hot spot, could be uh, even 55 at the pharmacy with uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. So uh, obviously, if we focus more on one, we have to take away from the other until we get more and more vaccine coming in. Now, that being said, this month, April, uh, and we are expecting shipments this uh, this week uh, that will load up the mass vaccination clinics. But again, we're still a far ways from where we need to be, especially when it comes to deciding uh, who gets the vaccination first. Let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am well, thank you. So obviously, as we start to see more and more vaccine come into uh, the country this month, now we're starting to uh, question how or who should be getting this first. Should we keep going down in age, do you think, doctor, in age increments of five years, or should we be ha- uh, we should be focusing on frontline workers and hotspot areas? You know, I, I think my answer would be a mix of those two things. So, you know, fortunately, we are coming down. As you made pretty clear in your intro, including the pharmacies, you know, you're looking at at, at pretty well 55 plus. But we've got a hell of a crisis on our hands with the variants are just upon us. They're right at our heels. And, you know, what we're doing right now is not sufficient. So, you know, I'm actually told uh, that there really there's not massive amounts, but, you know, there's still a lot of vaccines in freezers that are not rolled out every single day. And, you know, the vaccine supply is increasing. So I think we do stay with phase two, but we also have to have a subcomponent of that where we get these vaccines out to essential workers. Now, look, here's the thing, and you know what I'm going to say. How do you define essential workers? 
But, you know, mostly those are people that absolutely cannot work from home is one thing. And secondly, because of the nature of their work are interactive and in, in, you know, congregate environments. So why is it that we have no mobile access to get vaccines into a factory setting, for example? Um, you know, why is it we can't bring them to grocery stores and see who amongst their staff it wants to be vaccinated right on the spot? These things are possible. And, you know, I, I actually think Ontario and Canada in general is really underreacting to this situation. Um, the variants are here. We're going into worse and worse lockdowns. We, I think we need to be doing both. Um, we've had this discussion uh, at length about the, the the freezer debate, and and just before the holiday, we were talking to Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who had said on the air, uh, as well as Paul Johnson, head of the emergency table, uh, a medical academic that we had on that day, uh, a business professor, that there are not freeze uh, mass amounts sitting in freezers that that is a myth and that really what this is about is there will always be uh vaccines and freezers in order to keep a supply chain moving if there is no vaccine in a freezer that means the whole thing comes to a halt they've had to cancel appointments because they didn't have enough supply to fill out uh various uh uh, centers that they were trying to open up for for the Easter weekend, for example. So, uh, again, for me, all of this, from what I'm seeing, is coming down to the fact that because we don't have enough, we're trying to decide who gets it first. We're moving ahead because we've delayed the second dose, which is more, which is something yeah. that, that I don't believe other countries are doing. So, again, it, 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 does this not come down to supply and us trying to figure out who gets it first? Yeah, but but even if you know, assuming all that is correct, and I'm not saying it's not, by the way, but 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 I still think we can do both simultaneously. Uh, there's still no reason with, with a good plan. Obviously, things can't sit around, but why we cannot be more mobile with this type of thing. Um, you know, part of the reason why there, there's not people always lined up at all of the vaccination sites is actually the logistics of communication. And look, there's different information out there. I was told by credible sources this morning, I'm not talking massive amounts, but there's significant amounts that are in freezers in Ontario right now. Um, because well, that is know, because a delivery has just come in. I had this uh, best explained I, to me as in a grocery shopping thing. For example, these deliveries come in either weekly or every two weeks, sometimes every three weeks. So again, if you do your weekly grocery shopping on a Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, you're going to have lots in there. By the time the end of the week rolls around Thursday and Friday, the fridges are empty. And again, that that's just basic supply management. Yeah. Yeah, I'm told it's something other than that. But, you know, the fact that you and I... Well, what else is it other than that? Is, ...is worrisome because, you know, the facts should be crystal clear to everyone. And the fact that there's different opinions on what the facts are is, is always very worrisome. It means there's different information floating around, which is in no one's best interest, which just creates more and more, you know. Um, but look, even if the supply is limited, I still think we, we have to rethink this. And I, I, I do think that we don't stop with phase two because phase two makes a lot. So phase two, we're coming down in age, but you're also looking at people with comorbidities, meaning, of course, you know, complicating health problems. So phase two actually does make some sense. But I also think we have to be incredibly flexible with this. And, and there's very strong arguments that the people that are getting the variants now 
are actually people that are, you know, essential workers, whether they be factory, whether they be grocery store, whether they be, um, you know, ride sharing uh, delivery, uh, you know, uh, taxi services, those types of things. So I, I do think we have to come up with a model that is both. And as you said, you know, the numbers of vaccines are going to rise and hopefully very, very quickly. Um, I don't think we can stay wedded to an exact rollout. I think we have to be very flexible at all times. So do we slow the do we slow the uh, the distribution of this to uh, the older age groups? Because, again, it's been coming down in five year increments. Do we slow that down and instead concentrate on those hot spot areas and those essential workers you're speaking of? I think we do. I think we do focus on those people. I'm not convinced it's going to slow it down by that much, by the way. But um, I do think we do both. Um, I really do. I, I think that is the most reasonable way to go because, you know, good ethics is based on good science. And, you know, there's multiple people out there that are saying the people getting sick right now are, in fact, you know, the essential workers at the trigger point uh, for these chains of illness. So I do think we can do both. I think we have to be as flexible as possible. I know the numbers are not wonderful with the vaccines, but they're going to get better very quickly. Uh, and, and again, unfortunately, I, that's the issue that's putting us into the predicament that's making us that's causing us to make these sorts of ethical decisions. What about your thoughts on us being the only country that's waiting up to four months for the second dose? I mean, we've certainly seen Canada go from, uh, you know, below 50th up the ladder. But if you look at the data, a, a lot of these, well, uh, most of these places are administering second doses. You can see where Canada has very much uh, lagged behind in the second doses but has shot up vaccinating more people what do you what are your thoughts on using that as a strategy when it doesn't appear any other country seems to be doing the same yeah you know it's an epidemiological question so i'm i'm, I'm going to defer it <laughs> because you know it, it's not my level of qualification i you know i hope it's epidemiologically sound meaning it's based on really sound science um, but again, I would say we have to be flexible on it. And what I really hope with the massive amounts of delayed doses is that if supply is good enough, we, we can shorten those delays. So the people that are waiting for the three-month period, that it's not going to end up being three months, that it's going to start to roll backwards, and then we'll really be in good shape. Um, there's some indication, particularly with older people, that the interval might not be, uh, you know, that, that the immunity may not last as long. So I think we have to keep a very close eye on it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the hesitancy uh, that uh, that is, I guess, has always been there, but certainly now even more magnified with the magnified with the issues around AstraZeneca? We're hearing lots of of, of canceled appointments, or even healthcare workers that are very hesitant to to go there. Yeah, no, hesitancy is a big problem. So what I'm trying to figure out is how much is hesitancy and how much is just difficult logistics. So especially with the older cohort. Um, you know, is it just the difficulty of getting down to a place like the Toronto Convention Centre and maybe a little bit of confusion? Or is it someone sitting at home saying, I don't even want this. I don't even care which one it is. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but the more the more flexible the system is, the better that is. And if you can get people going through buildings and finding elderly isolated people, that would assuming they want it, that would be a good thing. But you also touch on healthcare workers. Look, that's significant. Um, you're seeing it in multiple hospitals, and you're seeing it certainly with personal support workers. And I'll tell you what scares me about it is that if we're seeing hesitancy or what we think is hesitancy in healthcare workers 
And the older cohort, remembering that they're in, in harm's way more than anybody is, what happens when the rollout becomes the, you know, the 20 to 40 or 50 crowd? Like, what if the hesitancy goes up? Um, what scares me with that is we won't have herd immunity if, if you know, if, if this hesitancy is really a big problem. But again, I circle back to I, I'm not entirely sure what's drive, what is hesitancy and what is just confusion with rollout. There's clearly hesitancy there. I just don't know how much of it is hesitancy. Uh, uh, are you surprised at the hesitancy among healthcare workers? Because after all, you're at ground zero. You're seeing what all is going on uh, and, and certainly would be would be first in line as far as information and the ability to get a vaccine. So, you know, I can't see there'd be much, much logistic, uh, many logistical issues there. How do you explain healthcare workers being hesitant? I, I don't know how to explain it. And look, I'll be honest with you. I know some of them. These are highly educated people. Um, you know, what they're saying is, I just don't want it. Um, you know, there's two layers to it. One, they don't want it. I get that. Um, and that's their choice. But it's also, you know, from an ethical point of view, even if you have some doubts, one might think, but, you know, I have these duties. I'm working in a, in a large, massive hospital with all these things. So my hesitancy has to go to one side because there's an obligation and the obligation comes before my hesitancy. So I'm surprised there's not more of a focus on the obligation, you know, because you, you need to do this for other people. Like it's not just about you. So I don't know how to answer that question. I honestly don't. I, I've, I've had this conversation directly with people and they say, you know, they'll want to wait five years or so to see what the data looks like on this. I don't Dr. know what Gar- to say to that. No, again, ongoing debate, ongoing questions. Uh, Dr. Kerry yeah. Bowman with his bioethicist and assistant professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine with the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yep. Best wishes to you. Take care. A Toronto pharmacy started offering shots to teachers yesterday, and Global News confirmed last night educators, school bus drivers, and crossing guards with the Niagara Catholic District School Board will soon be able to receive a COVID-19 vaccine as well. So what about everyone else? Well, this group of workers are set to get shots in phase two of the province's vaccine rollout, but phase one hasn't been completed yet. An online petition, which will be sent to the Prime Minister, Premier and Minister of Education, has received over 60,000 signatures so far. The goal is 75,000. It says teachers and support staff are essential workers, and vaccinating them immediately will mean we can keep kids in schools and keep families healthy. Tina Torjani, Global News. It's what happens when you don't have enough vaccine. The big debate starts of who should get it first. Uh, Obviously, when this all started, it was about seniors and getting the seniors done and long term and such. We've seen those numbers, uh, the new cases and the deaths drastically drop uh, once we have got uh, most of the people in the homes fully vaccinated twice. And now moving down on to the into the younger uh, demographics, holding back that first dose for uh, four months now, allowing more uh, to be vaccinated as a result of that. Uh, we're the only country that's holding back the second dose for up to four months uh, in order to try to vaccinate more people. But now the decision is, becomes one of who do we uh, vaccinate first? Who do you know? Do we stop doing uh, the older people, the sixty-year-olds, and whatever? 
and 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 start concentrating on essential workers in the hot spots. Feel free to send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred chml dot com. The phone lines are always open. Of course, now the big issue appeal uh, has now announced today, uh, or sorry, over the weekend that uh, schools would be closing and uh, going online. Uh, where does that leave us moving forward? Will we see this uh, pan out across Ontario, maybe perhaps just in the hot regions? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Martha Fulford, pediatric infectious disease. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Got to switch in the guest here. We're going to bring Thomas Tenkate in, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Very well, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity again to be on the show. So, uh, again, we're having that ethical decision about who gets the vaccine, uh, vaccination first. Uh, obviously, if we had lots of vaccine or there were vaccines sitting in freezers, this would not be an issue. So uh, is it time to change, Thomas, who we're administering this to? I, the, our last guest said both. I think that's what we're doing. Uh, we can't do it more because we just don't have enough yet. Uh, but should we be looking at, uh, Thomas, perhaps uh, slowing down those that are in the 60, I guess we're working at 60s now, uh, to be vaccinated and instead uh, push this into the arms of those on the front lines and specifically those that are in hotspot areas? Uh, yes, Scott, I, I definitely think that uh, looking at it from a risk perspective is the way to go. And, and, and you know, to do that, you have to look at the numbers. And so so who's, who's getting... Uh, Who's getting sick and who's most at risk, and and the numbers are really showing that uh, that at you know school the the numbers are going up in school age children, they're going up in the you know below twenties and the and below forty year olds, uh, but they're sort of stable or, or dropping off in the older age groups, and so so from that perspective, if you use age as the you know director of of what what is risk, then you'd have to say well we have to think about uh, sort of maybe maybe looks you know stalling the you know the older age groups and then focusing on the younger age groups and 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 particularly then you'd also have to say well you know who who should who should you you know target then as well because as you said there's uh, the you know limited supplies still and and I think uh, you know that gets down to you know who are the frontline workers and and I think you know for me uh, you know definitely teachers are and, and support workers are and schools are, are important, but but then again, if schools go um, you know virtual, then then they're not going to be. Whereas whereas you know one of the er- you know one of the areas of of uh, of frontline workers that really haven't uh, been supported very well, are, say people you know the lower lower income uh, employees at at, uh, at uh, supermarkets and you know other food stores, and uh, you know they they also. You know, often don't have uh, the same sort of paid leave, paid sick leave arrangements and whatever else as well. So, so I definitely think when we we have to think about uh, maybe maybe a switch or you know, as they as they used to say, a pivot. So uh, yeah, so so that I, I would I'd agree on that. So, is this a distribution issue or is it a supply issue in your mind? Um, it's a, sort of it's really, it's sort of hard to know because you hear, hear stories of. Of you know we've got plenty of supplies and uh, you know the, and then people say say well you know there, there's there's lots of people booked in but but then they say they've got extra at the end of the day so it, it's really very hard to actually know what's really going on and 
But I think it's also you know, a, a public health unit uh, specific issue. So, so because each public health unit are also managing things in their own own way based on their community needs, there's 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 quite quite a lot of differences across the across the province. Uh, what are you expecting to hear from the premier today on all of this? Well, I, you know, my my sense is that uh, you know it, it, you know going back to you know numbers uh, previously, you know we were you know when they when they closed schools we were at uh, you know numbers that were far less than what we we're we we're getting at the moment, and uh, and the numbers are just uh, continuing to increase. So the trend is for you know increase uh, continual continual increase. So so my sense is that we would you know even though I know that they want to hold the schools open the only way they can do that i think is either is to be really vaccinating uh teachers and support workers uh but my sense is that you know there's a lag time in that uh and because you once you get vaccinated there's only going to it takes a few weeks for for the level of immunity to to rise anyway so so we really don't have that sort of time frame you know another month or so to wait for all of that to happen so my sense is that uh you know, after after the uh, you know the April break next week, we might be having kids uh, uh, online again at home. Could you see uh, them possibly extending the March break by our spring break? I guess now <laughs> yeah, April break uh, yeah. by another week, just simply because of the fallout from the Easter holiday. Yeah, yeah. My my sense is that uh, you know the, the, that that's really on the cards now. Uh, you know, and 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 sort of. Whatever sort of break they can give in the system is is uh, from a public health perspective is, is beneficial. So, uh, yeah, definitely, my sense is that that uh, it's very much on the cards, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some either extension of the you know some extension for some period of time uh, after the uh, after the break next week. Uh, obviously, uh, many have been trying to keep the kids in school for obvious reasons, uh, and, and that, that's that's the objective here. Is is they're better there than than out. However, there are great there is great concern about uh, the new variants and their ability to spread in young people and in schools. So, uh, when it comes, as you said, risk management, risk assessment, is it worth uh, closing the schools down? Should those schools be closed down? and put uh, online uh, the variants being more of a threat or how do you balance the mental health aspect of this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's, you know, when I look at the numbers and look, you know, tracking the numbers uh, over, over the past year or so, we've, we're definitely at, at the stage where the the cases are really increasing in the school age children and, and that's directly related to these variants of concern, and particularly the, the UK variant, uh, becoming much more dominant. And and I think the current numbers are that the, the, these variants are more than 50% uh, of the of the actual total number of cases. So so you know that's and, and that was what that, the modelling that sort of shocked everyone. You know the the other week uh, they they were predict they were based on a at least a 50% uh, proportion. So so we've passed that already, and so you know. Even though I know that the uh, previous modelling was pretty shocking for everyone, it, it's sort of starting to come true, and the, and the trend is trend is there for 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 following that modelling numbers. And so, if that's the case, then uh, definitely you know, school age kids uh, are really 
know, at much greater risk. You know, like from a, from a you know sort of from a death perspective, they're not. But but from getting getting sick and, and having to go to hospital, they are. And we know hospitals are at uh, you know full capacity at the moment in regard to uh, ICUs. Uh, many are saying uh, that the province should shut down uh, right the way across. That the the premier should shut everything down. Uh, and, and as far as and, and including schools, um, the Peel Region Medical Officer has decided, uh, and they have the power to do this, to close down their region uh, for two weeks. This is obviously a, uh, a a hot spot. Is this something the province should be doing, or should we see more medical officers of health doing this? Toronto's talking about it. Um, you know, obviously Peel's done it. Do, do do you need to shut down? Does the this is this something the premier has to do? Does they have to shut down the whole province, or um, your thoughts on the medical officer deciding to do this, and and you know specific to their region? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think definitely, you know, the medical officers of health in the, each of the public health units, you know, have the ability to implement their own uh, restrictions, and and so and definitely, you know, they they uh, they should be considering considering that. I think you know, there's still a there's still an aspect that uh, each of the you know the the provinces, you know, the distribution across the province in regard to population is is quite varied, and the, and the numbers that we see are, are varied as well, and so. I would probably prefer to think about the uh, province in sort of a broader regional perspective versus a, a smaller public health perspective. And so, so once you talk Peel, I think you have to be thinking of you know the Greater Toronto area as well. And then, and you also have to think, uh, you know, look at it as more of a regional basis. But but what we've also seen uh, on the flip side is that some of the uh, smaller or the more remote regions. They're, 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 they don't have the you know hospital capacity to handle the cases that they're getting as well. So so you've got the, the combination of of resource capacity as well as uh, increasing cases across the across the province. Um, obviously, uh, Toronto's medical officer of health uh, saying you know alarming things that we should shut this all down now. Uh, are you surprised they don't take the same effort and, and, and with the medical officer in that area just closing the schools down? It, it seems that people want them closed, but they don't want to take responsibility for closing them. Well, well, you know, and again, this is, uh, you know, one of those points that it's, you know, if, if, you're, if you're purely basing it on, on public health measures and what's the best from a public health perspective, you, know, you, would, you, would, be, uh, you would be closing a lot of things down. Uh, but the you know the the politics of the the issue is 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 there and, and that that's getting you know that's getting weighed weighed as well. So uh, I, I think uh, you know we're in a, an interesting position because you know looking at the looking at the you know the trend in numbers, we're since uh, since mid February late February we've just had a you know acceleration in the number of cases and uh, you know and that's not stopping. So so. We'd ha- you'd have to say we have to really reconsider what what's happening uh, uh, across the province and also particularly in in what they're calling the hotspots. Uh, this seems to be something that's going right the way across the country. Perhaps the exception of the Atlantic provinces, which have been able to bubble themselves around each other. Uh, but we seem this is rolling right the way across the country, isn't it? Right, yeah, definitely. You know, and that's what we sort of expected once the, these variants of concern 
started to uh, become more more of a concern and more of a proportion of the total number of cases. And uh, and you know we if we if you look at uh, you know the UK and, and other countries where where the uh, the variant these variants of concern have uh, you know taken over, then you know we're we're seeing we're seeing what that they saw you know a while ago. And so so definitely. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not a respecter of of province, uh, but it but it is a it is in response to whatever the uh, measures and how strict the measures were uh, in place already. So so I think you know we we're basically getting what what we've uh, you know by res- you know a few weeks ago there was uh, you know there was you know we knew the cases were going up, but there were sort of pulling pulling back on the restrictions and and that, that that both you know that doesn't sort of bode well for 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 uh, you know for the future and that and that's what we're seeing now um thomas talk about the conflicting reports around astrazeneca i think it's changed like three times the information on this some of it you know just new research and and is to be expected uh, but other situations like with nasi and health canada just coming out with two different sets of of information, it seems that the, Astra, the the confusion around AstraZeneca is greatest in Canada. Uh, how much is that going to slow down our vaccination process? Do you think? Well, well, it definitely plays into people's uh, sort of concern about whether or not they should should get the vaccine, and you know, and that, and you know, people would have heard the term vaccine hesitancy uh, being thrown around a lot, and 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 basically anything that you. That, that, that happens to sort of undermine undermine people's confidence in the vaccine. Uh, any of the vaccines uh, really really drives down uh, people people getting them. So so I think that's that's what like like I think the actual issue of of blood blood clots associated with with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, you know there there is a there is definitely an epidemiological sort of link there, but. If you look from a again from a risk perspective, the the risk is still very low and lower than sort of for whatever the, within the general community anyway, and and substantially lower than if someone actually gets COVID, uh, and because there's a you know a relatively high proportion of people who get COVID who get uh, blood clotting. So so I think if you look at it from that perspective, sure we have to be mindful, but but we also have to keep that that level of risk in perspective. But what it does, though, is that it it uh, impacts people's uh, confidence in the system, and uh, and and that's what you know that's what we don't want. We we want people to have confidence and want to get out there and get their vaccines. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We, we're doing 2.638 million vaccines so, uh, so far, hammering the whole country. We're, we're doing more than, more than anyone with both hands tied behind our back with dribs and drabs of vaccines. To your point about we have vaccines in freezers, what, what really drives me crazy is when, when you know, some folks, I don't know, be it the media or be it maybe some political folks, are saying, oh, they have 1.3 million vaccines. What you don't tell the people, which I'm telling them right now, folks, we just got them two days ago. Over the last few days, they just literally landed on our doorstep. 
it takes a day for the distribution. We got it out and we're ready to go. We are ready to go. We have over 1.3 million appointments booked. So, uh, you know, just keep booking them, bringing in more vaccines, the 700 pharmacies, we'll be able to get out more. We'll get more out with primary care. But let's, let's if, if we're gonna say that, let's be honest with the people. We just received the vaccines and folks, we need more vaccines, simple as that. Man, the focus continues to be on the provinces and not the fact that we have low supply. And it's amazing, as the Premier just noted, not only it's the media, we've, I've questioned uh, medical academics on this. I did again uh, at the beginning of the show, Dr. Kerry Bowman from uh, University of Toronto. And he said to me, you know, I've got a source that told me there are thousands and thousands of vaccines in freezers today. Well, yeah, they just came in over the holiday weekend. And again, these uh, vaccines come in once maybe twice, uh, once a week, maybe once every two weeks, sometimes once every three weeks. And that allotment that comes in sits in the freezers until they go out to those people who have booked appointments over the last several weeks. So as soon as those come in, they're spoken for. You don't just open the window and throw them out the door like a pile of French fries into a McDonald's parking lot waiting for the seagulls and pigeons to grab them all. Because then the people in the drive-thru don't get any who have already ordered. See what happens there? And yet we still get this. If the freezer's empty at any time, it comes to a grinding halt. Uh, Canada's Wonderland was supposed to be operating all weekend. Not enough supply. It didn't come in fast enough. Uh, Rosedale, I believe, on the mountain was supposed to open. Not enough supply yet over the holiday weekend. So it amazes me. You have media people. You have doctors that are saying there's all this stuff in freezers. And again, we're taking appointments. You get, say, 100 vaccines in. They go out to the 100 appointments. And then by the end of the week, they're gone. And then the next batch comes in, and then the next batch of people who have booked. So it just amazes me to no end how much we're focusing on provinces and their ability or not to to distri- to distribute uh, distribute this stuff, and in, you know instead of saying hey come on in and roll up your sleeves, we're now left with the ethical question of saying well who gets it first? If there is so much supply, if it is all sitting in freezers, we don't have these debates. The debate then moves to why aren't people getting it because of vaccine hesitancy. So again, can we please put the just the irresponsibility of the freezer argument to bed? Even uh, Del Duca, whatever his name is, the head of the Liberal Party, is hashtagging check the freezer, Doug. Like, honestly, this is misinformation and is not how supply chain management works. And yet we have everybody, including uh, medical academics who, who, who refer to this. Then others that know about supply chain management say, well, no, that's not the case. Those are spoken for. That's why we're collecting appointments. Now, apparently, they're all supposed to come in. We'll see what happens. But again, at the end of the day, the, the, the stuff that's in a freezer is spoken for, for someone who has already booked an appointment weeks ago. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. Find out exactly where uh, Hamilton is in all of this. And uh, as we're moving down to those uh, in the younger uh, seniors demographic, Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Center, City of Hamilton. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Great. I am doing well. Good to be with you. So I understand we got tons of a vaccine that arrived over the weekend. Uh, what does this mean for Hamilton? Uh, so Hamilton announced uh, today uh, we worked with the province uh, over the weekend. Our bookings uh, slowed down, and some of that's not a good story, Scott. We'll come back to that a little bit about uh, the numbers of people that aren't coming out to get their vaccine. But the reality is we have bookings available uh, we have vaccine uh, that's available now, and so Hamilton today has started to book uh, those that are 60 years of age and over uh, as part of the rollout. So that will bring more people in for eligibility, uh, which means we'll get more of those bookings filled and, and uh, use up, as, uh, as you say, that vaccine that comes in each week. Uh, we know it's coming in each week. We start the week strong. We end the week with very few doses, and then we start it all over again the next week. So what is the issue with uh, booking? And here's a question we just got from a uh, listener, Paul. Um, uh, this listener spoke with his doctor's office about getting his vaccine, and the office gave him the city of Hamilton's COVID not, uh, hotline number, called twice and both times it went on hold, then eventually disconnected, uh, does not have the Internet. How can he book his vaccination? Uh, so... Unfortunately, if he was calling, uh, you know, in a surge day like today, then it's going to be a, a challenge. So keep trying the number. Uh, you will eventually get through. Uh, we have, um, you know, usually between 1,000 and 2,000 calls that come in on a regular day. But whenever we open up uh, a new eligibility group, that number always goes up. Uh, keep trying. If you get kicked out, it's only because there are 250 people ahead of you on hold and our system is only as uh, only so large, uh, do call back. And we're also, during the week, open uh, from morning hours into the early evening hours. And on the weekends, the call center is also open. So for people without Internet access, without a, without a health card, uh, they do need to phone directly into that hotline. And unfortunately, it is a keep trying. And this is what happens each time we open up a new group for eligibility. Our call volumes, as you might imagine, uh, go through the roof. And, and then they come down and we start to be able to answer calls much more quickly. So talk about the gaps in the appointments that you were referring to earlier. So our projections, uh, you know, heading into last week when we, we went to the 70-plus crowd, uh, we looked at, at the projections of who we felt would be booking, and, and we were very tight uh, for, for supply. Well, that booking didn't happen to that same level. And so, uh, you know, there are certain strategies you can employ on the fly to get some more people in. But the bottom line is that it said to us, it's time to open up and allow more people eligibility, allow them to book in. And that's what's happening now. And the estimation is it's about another 70,000 eligible people in the 60 plus crowd. So, uh, again, we expect many of these bookings to be filled up fairly quickly and we'll get back on track in terms of, of having uh, a full slate of uh, of vaccines going out the, the door. But any of these times, you know, people say, oh, well, you, now you've got extra. We don't have extra. We, we make it up as we go. And, and, you know, you rarely get yourself into a situation where you have tons of leftover vaccine. We'll find ways to uh, get it through. We can increase the amount of bookings that would happen during the week because none of our mass vaccination sites are operating anywhere near their full capacity. So it's not as though we would have to go over capacity to serve more people. We can simply add more bookings because most of those centers are about a third uh, to maybe close to 40% of their capacity. So lots of room for more bookings to happen, more people to get in and more vaccine to get into arms. So it seems, Paul, that uh, when you do announce a new age uh, category, that boom, things take off, but then it, it seems to level off. Uh, how do you explain that? Is that hesitancy or is that just time to move on to the next demographic? How do you explain that? 
Well, some of it is uh, we knew the waves would come. Uh, you know, you open it up uh, like everything else. You open up availability. People are always there at the beginning, um, and that's good news. People want it, so let's let's get at it. And then we always expect it to start to tail off. I would say uh, with some of these more recent um, uh, new categories that we've opened, the tailing off is happening before we're at a very high, per, you know, the, the, the type of percentage of people taking us up on the, the vaccine bookings than we would like. Uh, you know, we, we really encourage people to get this vaccine. And if people have specific concerns about their health issues or allergies or something, by all means, go and talk to your uh, healthcare provider and make sure that this is uh, the right thing. But for the vast majority of us, this is uh, something that, that you should be encouraged to do and you should take advantage of. And quite frankly, the percentages are not there. Uh, we would have expected it to be higher. And, uh, and it was very strong out of the gate in terms of those who reside in long-term care retirement homes or those who are uh, in, a, in a very um, uh, high age category. But now we're seeing it, just not the, the kind of uptake that we would have expected, Scott. And so I hope that that turns around with people realizing that this is a easy to do uh, in terms of booking and getting to the sites and getting through. And all of what we hear is when people come to the vaccine sites, uh, they, they say it's a very smooth operation. It's not going to take a lot of time. You get your second appointment at the, the same time. So you're going to be fully vaccinated if you're getting in now, uh, you know, into by the summertime. And that's good news for uh, for those in our community. So we really need to start talking both about this whole supply issue and when the next group's going to be welcome. We also need to talk about uh, why people are choosing not to get the vaccine when they are eligible. Interesting. Um, so who can get vaccinated in Hamilton today? Uh, what's the process? What's the update? So the big group uh, is now from an age perspective, it's anyone who's 60 years of old or 60 years of age or older. And so that's a, a large group of, of people. And once you're eligible, you're always eligible, Scott, so you don't have to worry about missing your slot. Uh, it doesn't work that way. So uh, you will be competing, obviously, for bookings with more people. But uh, if you are uh, 75 years old, for instance, uh, didn't get it when it was offered first to you, by all means, book in today. Uh, and, uh, and and come and get that vaccine. Uh, so that's happening. We have other programs that are targeting uh, different uh, areas. So we're still doing some work in congregate settings. Those might be uh, adult living facilities. We're doing some work, continuing to do some work with shelters, places like that to make sure that the staff and residents of those places are vaccinated. Our urban indigenous population as well, uh, all adults in that population can call in and get a booking uh, for for uh, for the vaccine, and then there are some obviously the healthcare workers who are uh, high risk uh, in high risk environments are also there that are eligible. So all the information is on our website. Uh, I say this often: is there a quick answer to who's eligible? The answer is usually no. Uh, it's it's go and see what you're doing and and where you are. And if you think you're eligible, you can go and check that on our website. And then of course the province today announcing that we're you know, moving ever closer to uh, having many, many more people eligible for the vaccine in phase two. This will include more workers. It will include more ages. And, uh, you know, we'll see uh, how that plays out in terms of how we can make sure that we quickly move through those categories and get as many people vaccinated as possible. So, Paul, just to clarify, this new 60 plus, that's for the city clinics, not necessarily the pharmacies, which are obviously offering 55 and up the, the AstraZeneca. 
Correct. This is a booking you can do through the provincial booking tool, and you can go to the Hamilton Health Science in St. Joe's or, or First Ontario site run by the city. Uh, or you can, uh, you may have got calls from pharmacies if you book through that route. You may have got a call from your family physician. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's lots of ways now and more vaccine in our community. And, uh, you know, this is this is good news. This is how we actually uh, start to really get moving with this is to have more of that supply available to us. And the pharmacies opening up and, and there will be more. And I know lots of debate about where they were. And, and we certainly as the city uh, expect and, and really we're demanding that some of these uh, locations be in, in certain other areas of the city than the ones that already opened up. But as they open up, that's more opportunities and places for people to go. Some people may find that more appealing to them in terms of where to get their vaccine. And that's that's fantastic. The goal here is to have multiple channels for people to get access to the vaccine. But I, I've got to say, we, we need to spend a bit more time, you know, over the coming days and weeks, obviously, talking about uh, why vaccination is a really important piece, because we're a little concerned about the low uptake uh, in these early days. Now, maybe it'll correct itself and fix itself, Scott, but I would have expected more of a push over the weekend from the populations that were already eligible. Hmm. And that's leading to hesitancy, obviously, or, or a result of. So uh, 60 plus in Hamilton can now uh, register online at a, uh, for a city clinic. Of course, a stress, you need an appointment. You just can't walk up to these things. Is this for city of Hamilton residents only? What about those that are in outlying areas? Well, the the reality is that uh, people from outside the uh, and we talk when I talk about the city of Hamilton, it's obviously all of the city of Hamilton, all five hundred and forty thousand strong. Um, so people can book from wherever they live, and and you know we have some pop up cl- clinics that are around, so people may choose to go to that route or our larger sites. But the reality is also people can come in from other communities and book. It's a provincial booking tool, uh, not uh, strictly for the city of Hamilton. But what we're finding is that. We probably have as many people that may be getting it somewhere else and maybe closer to work, maybe closer to, to other family that uh, people are visiting appropriately, uh, regularly, uh, or for whatever reason. So we have some people that are not Hamilton residents that are getting their vaccine here, but we also have Hamilton residents getting their vaccine somewhere else in the province of Ontario. That's so interesting. Sure that It's a big problem, uh, to be honest with you. No one's raising that as a big issue. Uh, I just put it out there because it isn't. We do not completely limited to only people who have a Hamilton address. All right. Good to know. And and uh, obviously, as you mentioned, people go in and out of these various regions, may work in one, live in another and, and what have you. All right. Any advice right now as we sign off, Paul? Uh, keep checking for eligibility. If you're having trouble booking, be patient, keep booking. And uh, by all means, this the vaccine is a thing that is good. Uh, consider it. Sign up as soon as you're eligible. Uh, that's the advice we're giving to to Hamiltonians, and that's the way we're going to finally see the end of this pandemic. Paul Johnson with us, Director of the Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck moving forward. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Here is today's daily commentary. Not much has changed at our house in the last 18 years when it comes to Easter. Of course, the current COVID-19 lockdown restrictions not included. It starts with me, I mean the Easter Bunny, carefully hiding eggs all over the house. Nothing is off limits. After, of course, you hide the dog. Then it's time to wake the kids. After we have a device ready to record the shenanigans. Remember the old days, it was a video recorder. The bedroom doors spring open and the race is on. I'm serious. It's like watching rabbits at a dog park rather than an Easter egg hunt. 
Kurt goes for volume, simply running through the house, grabbing everything he can see, usually spinning out and sending his stash flying. Alicia, on the other hand, takes her time, methodically plucking everything Kurt misses. She looks for a system or pattern. Then when it's over, they count it all to see who has won, who has the most. They really have no interest in the chocolate. However, they are teenagers, so there is one difference now. Instead of the antics starting at 6 or 7 in the morning, it starts more around 11.30 or noon, which is nice. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, uh, let's move on and talk about uh, China continually threatening not only Canada, but even those Chinese Canadians who are living here in Canada. We have certainly heard a lot of late of the anti-Asian racism that has uh, spiked as a result of COVID-19 and such. Uh, we are hearing from many groups saying, uh, you know, obviously this has to stop. Uh, there can't be this sort of racism. It has to be directed towards the Chinese Communist Party and the country itself as opposed to its citizens. But there's other stories here that aren't being told, uh, including the threats that Chinese Canadians feel from the homeland while they're here in Canada. And there's not much that can do or they say that can be done here in Canada. And as a result, these people are not telling their stories. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, article that I'm speaking of, uh, uh, global news, uh, we're coming to get you China's critics facing threats, retaliation for any activism that they have in Canada. To talk more about this, Rachel Gilmore, journalist for global news, penned the article. We are, uh, she is with us now. Rachel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Rachel, this is a story that I think really needs to come out because I think it would really help in the situation when it comes to anti-Asian racism and, and people just get a greater understanding of what the heck is going on here. Tell us about the origins of this column. So I originally wrote the article because I was actually calling to chat with some of these activists for a different story. And then as I was asking them about uh, the other issue, they started telling me some of these personal stories of what they face for speaking out. And uh, I kind of realized that my story was uh, nowhere near as good as the stories that they had to share. Um, so I spoke with quite a few different activists. So not, not one of the people I spoke to in the story is supporting exactly the same cause. You know, I spoke to someone who is fighting for Uyghur rights, another person who's pro-Hong Kong, another person who's a Tibetan Canadian. But there were similar threads in what all of them face. And it's that when they speak out against China, they face campaigns of harassment. They face abuse. And in some instances, their family members back home are targeted. Uh, we're hearing more and more about this. It's something that it's a secret that, that many haven't uh, shared. Should we be sp spending as much time on this situation as we are the anti-Asian racism? And the reason I'm stating that is because there's a definite interest for the Chinese Communist Party to be promoting anti-Asian uh, hatred and racism, there's more of an advantage for them to be doing that than there is for these people's stories to be told on how they're being threatened in Canada by uh, their Chinese homeland. You know, I think in many ways, there's sort of two separate issues in that, you know, some of the same people who might be sharing these stories with me may also be facing the anti-Asian racism, you know, yeah. so it's, uh, it's so complicated. And I think that, uh, 
you know, they're both conversations that are worth having. And I think you made this distinction distinction when you were introing this chat here that, you know, the Chinese government isn't representative of all of the people who are from China. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of those individuals are fighting against some of their the Chinese government's more harmful policies. And frankly, a lot of the anti-Asian racism um, it has nothing to do with the Chinese government's policies. It's it's more so about uh, just hatred for people who, you know, some folks like to target those who they perceive as different from them or looking. And they're labeling all Asian and labeling all Asians as Chinese. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so they're kind of two separate issues and two separate conversations. And, you know, maybe it's idealistic of me, but I would really hope that we can have both conversations without taking any oxygen from the other. Yeah. Um, good point. They're two important issues. So how influential is the Chinese government on Chinese Canadians? Well, they can certainly, well, I guess, uh, let me just take a step back from what I was about to say, because one thing that's really important is um, it's really insidious, the reach that they have, because it's not only, uh, you know, it's very difficult to prove whether it's directly the Chinese government who's behind these actions. In many cases, uh, you know, there's hints, but uh, often there's also just folks who are pro-Beijing, who support the Chinese government and want to be so emphatic in that support that they perpetrate this harassment without even being asked to do so because there's incentives for being clearly pro-Beijing. Um, so, you know, one one activist told me that the group of, um, of uh, students who were very clearly pro-China's government would be taken for shopping trips at Hope Holt Renfrew. Uh, you know, so there's clear financial incentive to support the Chinese government. And then in addition to that, uh, there is just there's the slightly more um, what appears to be san- state sanction. The Chinese government has denied it. They wouldn't respond to my request for comments, uh, but they have in the past denied their involvement in these sorts of campaigns. But to hear the activists tell it, it, it does. You, you know, there's things like Chinese officials going to visit their parents back home. Those are clearly Chinese government mm. people who go and they sit down and what they do is they have what's called a tea visit. So they go and visit an activist parents in, say, Hong Kong, and they have tea with them. And they say, so your son's been pretty active or your daughter's been pretty active on these issues. Maybe you should tell them to stop. And it's a method of intimidation wow. that then gets relayed to the people back home in Canada who are trying to fight for, you know, freedom for their family members back home. So, and correct me if I'm being ignorant here, Rachel, but there seems to be two types of Canadian Chinese citizen in this country. Like any other uh, typical immigrant, uh, a Chinese Canadian that comes here to start a new life, a new uh, a new family, all of that sort of thing. Then there's the then there's other Chinese Canadians who are. It's less about Canada and and, and more Chinese nationalists who are, are just trying to sell the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, movement and policy. How how do Chinese Canadians separate those? How do we how do we tell who's who if there's the underground uh, Chinese nationalists that are trying to force the homeland's uh, views and those Chinese in Canada that want nothing to do with them? Well, I would say in terms of uh, you know the everyday people you're running into, I would assume that all of them are just normal people like you and me. And obviously, within that context. 
um, there, there might be pressures that they deal with that we can't even begin to imagine. I mean, um, the activists I spoke to were facing, as I mentioned, repercussions for everything they were doing. And I think it's hard if you put yourself for, you know, if I put myself in their shoes and imagine that I supported a cause in the way that they do, um, you know, who among us is willing to take that risk? You know, one mm-hmm. guy told me a story about how he spoke up about what's happening to the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region, and 37 of his relatives disappeared. Three years later, he got a message that his mom was dead, and he still doesn't know if she's alive because he's never heard from her. So, you know, you can't really fault people who don't speak up. Um, yeah. And I think that in many ways, that's what you're more likely to run into than anything else is just people who are afraid. So, so how do we expose this story, Rachel? I mean, obviously, you've done it here with this column. How does this message get out? Well, um, I think that it's the activists themselves are fighting every day to try to bring attention to it. Um, so if you just kind of center those voices and listen to those people, they're really smart, you know. Sherry Wong spoke to me, um, mm. Mehmet Toti as well. He's a Uyghur activist. And uh, Chemi Lamo as well. These are three people who are some of the bravest people I've ever met in my life. And if you listen to what they have to say, they have all kinds of ideas and innovations for how Canada can help them. Because right now, a lot of it falls into a legal gray area. You know, how does the RCMP mm. do anything about that tea visit back home? Is there any is there any movement in Canada to somehow help this? How how can the government of Canada help? So one thing that the activists brought up was something called um, a foreign agents registry. Uh, it's something that they're calling for, where they want the the spies in Canada to have to declare <laughs> that they're undergoing these operations. Now, obviously, mm. common sense would be due to believe like they're not going to do that, but. Yeah. What that does is it makes it possible for us to have a reason to prosecute them, because if they don't declare that they're undertaking these operations, the government can do something about it. Um, so it gives them a sort of legal route to take with these otherwise kind of legal gray areas of intimidation and harassment, where unless it's a criminal threat, there's not much that can be done. So that, that's sort of a big one that they're calling for. Any chance of that happening? Do you see in the future, Rachel? Uh, well, I mean, the government does seem increasingly attuned to the issue. Uh, Bill Blair was talking about it in a committee a few weeks ago, as was Brenda Lucky. So I think that they're starting to have some conversations. But, you know, uh, there's lots of conversations that happen on Parliament Hill that, uh, you know, take years to turn into action. So I think that all we can do is just keep paying attention to these stories, keep listening to the people telling them and hope for the best. The column is, we're coming to get you. Chine, uh, China's critics facing threats here, retaliation for activism in Canada. Rachel, uh, Rachel Gilmore has been with us, journalist for Global News. Rachel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.